Okay, what's going on? Um, we had people over last night when we were drinking. Most of us went to bed. One of them stayed on the balcony. She was drinking, and we just went out outside, and she's laying face down in the backyard. It looks like me. I'm guessing maybe she fell off the balcony, but she's stiff. Okay, is she breathing? I, I don't. I don't know if she's face down. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Let's Talk Crime. As you heard in the 911 call and can tell by the title, we're going to be talking about the potentially unsolved death of Tamla Horsford. Tamla was found outside of a friend's home in Cumming, Georgia, laying face down in the grass the morning after an adult sleepover party. Her death has attracted many questions as to how she actually died. Did she really fall from the balcony after a night of drinking, or was this a cover-up? This case revolves a lot around conspiracy and allegations, and I want to make it clear right now that no one has been arrested or charged with any crimes at this point. The only thing we do know for sure is that Tamla died at a sleepover. Everything else is all speculation. Tamla was born in St. Vincent and the Grenaldines, an island in the Caribbean. At age 12, her and her family immigrated to the United States, landing in the Bronx, New York. In 2002, she met her husband, Leander Horsford, in Florida. Although Leander had a daughter from a prior marriage, Tamla treated her as her own. They were very close, and Tamla even FaceTimed her and her husband, the night she mysteriously died. Tamla and Lee went on to have five boys together, and despite living with six boys total, Tamla made it look so easy according to her family. In 2012, the family moved to the suburbs of Atlanta in Cumming, Georgia. Now this city and county of Forsyth had a troubled past and has not always taken kindly to people of color. In 1912, two black men were convicted of rape that ultimately led to a civil war in coming Georgia. Whites were attacking, lynching, and even killing their black neighbors throughout Forsyth County after these convictions, blaming two people's actions on an entire race. The governor at the time, Joseph Brown, sent in the National Guard to prevent any further violence but the damage was already done. According to the New York Times, almost the entirety of Forsyth County's black population, totaling to a little over 1,000 people, felt forced to leave in fear of their safety. At the gas station, the grocery store, and even in their own home. If you were black, you were surrounded, threatened, and harassed in Forsyth County. By 1987, Forsyth's population was entirely made up of only white people, and it appears this demographic has only altered slightly. By 1997, with 10 years of quote-unquote racial purity, only 39 black residents lived in Forsyth County, with a total population of 75,739. The most recent census, taken in 2019, 
shows a total population of 244,452 people reside in Forsyth County. About 4% are Black, totaling to about 9,000 Black residents. While, yes, that's better than zero or 39, in a statistically perfect room of 100 people, only four of them would be Black. Let me remind you that only 24 years ago, the Black population was 39. I am sure that desire for a racially pure town is still alive and well in Forsyth, and it extends from grandparents, parents, children, and is passed down for generations. But the thing is, that it isn't even that many generations it has to be passed down to. This history and the demographics of Forsyth County are a very important aspect that explains why, or helps to explain why, there is controversy about a black woman who supposedly fell from a balcony and died at a sleepover with 12 other white people. But the town and the county's history are not the only reason why people feel that Tamla's death was no accident and someone at this party may have killed her. Before we go into Tamla's case, I want to make a disclaimer now that I am not trying to start a political battle in the comments. I'm not saying that we can't have a civil discussion about racial tensions in the United States because it can be relevant to this case. But there will be no harassing, degrading, or racist comments. So let's continue. On November 3rd, 2018, Tamla had plans to attend a birthday party slash adult sleepover at another mom's house. Tamla's boys played football, which is how Tamla got to know the host, whose name is John Myers. Jean planned for some of the other football players' mothers to get together for her birthday with a LSU versus Alabama football game, cards, and a sleepover, so no one had to worry about drinking and driving or finding a ride. Lee told police that it was supposed to be an all-girls party, but some of the husbands decided to go do their own thing in the basement while the women had their fun. In total, there were nine women two husbands, and Tamla at Jean's house. There was also another husband who only dropped off and picked up his wife, who have now become what is known as the Forsyth Twelve, meaning 12 people who may know what happened to Tamla. Jean's aunt also lived in the home in the basement suite area. Her name is Madeline. Tamla showed up to the party a little bit later than everyone else. She made her husband and her boys dinner and even a casserole for breakfast. She wanted to make sure that her boys were taken care of while she was gone, and she rarely left the house. I mean, this one night was probably the first time in a long time she spent the night away. As a mother of five and living with six boys, this was an exciting night for Tamla. She had her pajamas ready to go, a cute little Dalmatian onesie, and she was just happy to be there, according to everyone at the party. She showed up to the house with a bottle of tequila as a birthday present for Jean, but Jean turned it down, saying that she didn't like tequila. Now, I totally get this, not being much of a fan of tequila myself, 
but this may have been the start of potential conflict between the two. Although all the partygoers said that they all had a good night, Tamla was also smoking weed, according to Jean. Jean was not happy about this because her boyfriend, Jose Barrera, worked in law enforcement as a pre-trial services officer. Basically, she didn't want any illegal activities going on at her and Jose's house because it made Jose uncomfortable. According to Jean, this didn't result in any conflict. Tamla just apologized, and that was it. But Jean also says the mood became a little low during the game when LSU lost, which was Jean's favorite team, and it just appeared that the vibe kind of lagged. Despite this, everyone also said that Tamla was having a good time, but she didn't appear to be intoxicated at all, despite drinking a pretty large amount of tequila. She wasn't stumbling, slurring, or doing anything to indicate that she was too drunk, which was just odd because that was one of the first things Jean told the 911 dispatcher was that they had been drinking a lot the previous night. The party started to die down around 1.30 a.m. when Jean started to clean up the living room, indicating that she was ready for bed. Two of the women had already left and one was about to leave. Jean said that Tamla tried to convince her to stay up, but she had to wake up at 5.30 a.m. the next morning, so she told Tamla she couldn't. At the end of the night, it was only Tamla and a woman named Bridget who were awake and Bridget was waiting for her husband to pick her up. Now, Bridget's kind of a tough cookie. She was really antisocial. She was working at this party, and she was just kind of over the whole thing. She said that while she was waiting for her husband, Tamla was eating a bowl of gumbo, and they were just chatting about another woman, Jen, who was the drunk one at the party. There's always gotta be one. But basically, she said that Jen was annoying her and she just wanted to get out of there. When her husband was outside, Tamla went to hug her and she wasn't really reciprocative of this. She just wasn't a hugger like Tamla supposedly was. And what really got me during this interview was when Bridget was talking about how Tamla hugged and kissed her goodbye. She said, quote, She walked me to the door, gave me kisses, so my DNA will be all over them jammies, unquote. She also said, quote, that woman was a seasoned drinker, unquote, referring to Tamla being able to hold her liquor well. I just didn't like the way she said that woman and blaming Tamla for hugging her because her DNA would be on Tamla. I know that they didn't know each other well, but it seemed like she was trying to distance herself from the situation, which you were the last person to see her alive. There's no distancing yourself. I don't know, that just rubbed me the wrong way. But Bridget may not have been the last person to see Tamla alive. Jose said he came upstairs from the basement and saw Tamla in the kitchen by herself. He said that there was a wall in the way that could have been blocking another person but he didn't see if there was someone else still there. He says he went back upstairs to go to bed with John. Either way, Bridget left at 1.47 a.m. according to the home security system, 
signaling the front door opening and closing at that time. At this point, there were eight other people in the house and also Tamla. All of them claimed to be in bed, sleeping. Now, multiple people, including Bridget and Stacy, were told by Tamla that she was going to finish her gumbo, smoke a cigarette, and go to bed. And it appeared that's what she did. At 1.49 a.m., the back door that leads to the balcony opened and then closed at 1.50. It opened again at 1.57, but was never closed. Even in the morning, some guests noticed that this door was still open. Stacy, her husband Tom, Marcy, and Paula all left before 8 a.m. that morning. So that leaves four people and Tamla, who was already on the ground, I'm assuming. These four people were Jean, Jose, Madeline, and Jen, who was heavily intoxicated the night before. In the morning, Madeline woke up around 8.45 in her basement apartment, and she was just making coffee and having a regular morning. As her coffee's brewing, she notices Tamla's Dalmatian pajamas and then Tamla, on the ground with her face planted in the grass. She claims she said a prayer, went upstairs, and knocked on John's bedroom door. But when she heard the water running, she went back downstairs to check if Tamla had moved or gotten up, but she hadn't. So Madeline went back upstairs, knocking on the door harder this time. When she walked in, she said she only wanted Jose to come downstairs with her. Obviously panicked, Jean asked what was going on, and Madeline responded with, quote, Your friend from the islands is laying in the backyard, and she's not moving, unquote. Like I said, that feeling of racial purity may not be gone. So Madeline, Jose, and Jean go downstairs to check on Tamla, and around this same time, Jen is hearing people going up and down the stairs, and she gets up. She claims she was up around 6.30 that morning, but her husband was coming to get her around 8.30. When she left the bedroom, her husband was already on the way. She doesn't realize anything is seriously happening until she asks Jean what is going on. And that's when John tells her that Tamla's outside, not moving. At this point, everyone goes outside to check on Tamla. Now, this gets fuzzy because everyone has different stories, which I understand because this is very hectic timing. Jen says that Jose and John were coming upstairs from the basement. Jose says that they checked on Tamla from the balcony and then went outside through the basement. And Jean can't remember what door they used to go outside. But Jose and Jean do say that when they finally went outside, Jose says he touched her back to wake her up and she wasn't responding. Then he moved her leg, which he said was stiff. So here's the 911 call because it is interesting. Forsyth County 911. Hi, yes, um, I, I need an ambulance and a place to my home. What's the address? 4450 Woodlake Court. 4450 Woodlake? Woodlake. Woodlake, okay. All right, 4450 Woodlake Court, what is your name? My name is John Myers, J-E-A-N-N-E. 
Uh, my girlfriend has cameras here on the back deck that we can check. Okay. That I think would have caught the incident if she fell from here. Again, I, I, true, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say if she fell from from the deck or if she was already downstairs. She was the only motor here. And, I'm sorry. There's a lot of information. Okay, I'm so sorry about that. So you think she just popped right. out um, smoking? Yeah, she was. She was the only smoker. I mean, I'm, I'm on the back deck right now, and you know, cigarettes lighter, that type of thing are out here. Um, okay. I'm just trying to see where on the list mine came from. Okay. All right. Um, have, are all the people that were there last night, are they still at your house? Okay. Okay, there are four people that were here last night that are no longer here. Okay. And they just left this morning or they leave last night? Uh, do, do you know roughly what time each of them left? Uh, we, we, we can check. I mean, she's got an alarm system that gives alerts when the doors are open on her phone. Okay. But I would. I think the last time that I personally saw Tam was probably about 1 in the morning before I'd gone upstairs to bed. Okay. And, and at that point, she was the only one in the kitchen. I know. Okay. Let me see where the, everybody is. I have one um, deputy that's about to pull into your subdivision. So I'll stay on the phone with you just for a minute. Um, is this going to be around back? Is that the way he needs to go? Right. So we, um, when he pulls up to the residence, uh, there will be one, one, one car in the street, four in the downtown. And does he need to come and go through the house, or does he need to walk around the back? Um, they they can go around to the to the side. I'm going to grab my shoes, and then I'll direct them when they get here. No, it, it, it'll be easier for them because she's laying in the yard, down, you know, basically on the patio downstairs. Uh, I have one that should be pulling up. Do you see him outside? Yeah. Okay. All right. I'll let you go then. Based on some other reports, this was the public version of the 911 call, and there was more to it that we'll get into later. A lot of people criticize this call. They're saying they're being too calm. No one is freaking out while there's someone dead in the backyard. And I always say, you never know how you're going to react in this situation, but there were four people outside at this point, and not one of them you can clearly hear is freaking out 
despite Jean saying that she was hysterical during her interview with detectives. She was even the first person to talk to the 911 dispatcher, and she sounds anything but hysterical. This is also something that bothered me. Jean says, quote, We had people over last night and we were drinking. Most of us went to bed. One of them stayed on the balcony. She was drinking and we just went outside and she's laying face down in the backyard. I guess maybe she fell off the balcony, but she's stiff, unquote. She refers to Tamla as one of them and she. Tamla's name isn't even mentioned until four minutes into this 911 call. That doesn't sit well with me. There was again also confusion as to where this phone call took place, because to me, it sounds like Jean and Jose were on the balcony, so away from Tamla. Again, there's so much distancing. When the dispatcher asked if Tamla was still breathing, Jose just kept saying she's stiff, until finally he went into the backyard to check on her, and he said he couldn't tell. But when he first spoke to the dispatcher, he said she was stiff and wasn't breathing, as if he already checked on her. I understand people don't want to touch a dead body, especially in a case like this where you don't exactly know what happened. And Jose was a pretrial lawyer, and I'm sure he's seen cases where people question the DNA found on a body but don't say she's not breathing if you haven't checked yet. There's a website called Justice for Tam that also makes this statement in regards to the 911 call. Quote, At least four people stood over Tamla Horsford as they passed around the phone. John Myers, Jose Barrera, Jennifer Morrell, nor Madeline Lombardi attempted to provide aid to Tamla Horsford. She either lay dead or dying at Jean Meyer's coming home for hours. Not a single person, by their own statements, made to police try to help Tamla Horsford. Unquote. The only part of this 911 call that made me somewhat feel good about the situation was the surveillance cameras mentioned. And as we'll find out, we never get that footage. When police finally arrive, Tamla is pronounced dead at the scene. But again, this is also a controversial part of the case. No paramedics or medical aid went to Jean's home to check for any life or life-saving measures that could have been taken. I understand that Jose claimed that Tamla was stiff, which would indicate that rigor mortis had already set in and that Tamla had been dead for hours at this point. But he still was not able to tell the dispatcher definitively if Tamla was breathing or bleeding. Jean also made it very clear that Tamla had been drinking the night before, but no one ever led to the indication that maybe Tamla had passed out, maybe she was unconscious, and that's why she was stiff and unresponsive. I don't know, that just didn't sit right with me. I don't know Georgia's laws, but I go back to the Teresa Seavers case for this question. Teresa was found dead inside her home by a doctor who told the 911 dispatcher that she was beaten and cold, that she was dead. He even pronounced himself as a doctor 
and they still brought paramedics to the scene, and they were the ones who determined Teresa's death. Again, maybe that kind of system is different in Georgia, but that's something I've seen a lot of people question. Either way, Tamla was dead. By the time Forsyth County deputies arrived, she was cold to the touch. Based on the visual descriptions, Tamla had injuries on her shins, her wrist, her right temple, and she did have a small cut on her right wrist. She was laying in a prone position, meaning she was lying face down. Her left arm was bent and the right arm was extended along her body. They also measured the distance from the top of the railing to the ground, measuring it to about 15 feet. All of the people at Jean's house that evening, whether they stayed the night or not, were interviewed by police. The overall census of these interviews was that Tam was drinking a lot, but not drunk. Detectives also continuously asked every single person about the cigarettes if they were smokers and pretty much established that she was the only smoker there, which had already been established. Stacy claimed that she took a hit. Marcy said that she talked to Tamla for a little while while she was smoking. And Madeline was also outside with Stacy and Tamla for a little while. Madeline also said that she was there when Tamla smoked the weed. I'm assuming she might have indulged a little bit too, but for the most part, the rest claimed they took no part in that. I mean, seriously, most of them were saying, I don't want any part of that, or I'm not into that, and it seemed like most of the partygoers were judging Tamla for smoking a little bit of pot. It was just so weird to me that everyone mentioned that Tam was not wasted, but that she was smoking cigarettes and pot, and to me, it just made it seem like they were blaming the fall on that because Tam did say she was going outside for a cigarette before bed. Only two people really said that they assumed she fell. Other than that, there was no speculation. There was no, did she fall? Did she sit on the railing? Did she stand on the gas tank that was on the balcony? There was none of that. It just seemed like they were trying to get the attention off of them and onto her, which just made the whole thing seem off to me. There was also mention that Tamla may have been using cocaine from a friend who was not attending the party, but was claimed to be Tamla's best friend. I just want to know why this wasn't brought up as much as the cigarettes and the weed, though. I mean, every single person was asked about the cigarettes and the weed, but only a few were asked about the cocaine. Like I said, everything about this case just seems off to me. Another thing that struck me as odd while reading through these interview transcripts was that no one was asked if they heard anything that night, if they heard Tamla fall, if they heard Tamla go outside with someone else, if they heard Tamla yell as she was falling from the balcony. And it only gets worse. All four people in the house saw Tamla's body in the backyard, and they all said it was weird that she was laying face down and that her arms were lying by her side. But Jose also said in the 911 call that is not in the public version that Tamla had a cut on her wrist, and he suggested it may have been self-inflicted. 
I'm noticing a small right cut on her right wrist. She's not breathing whatsoever. I don't know if this cut truly was self-inflicted. During Jose's interview, law enforcement asked if he moved Tamla's arm or if he knew anyone who did. The initial police report described that Tamla's left arm was bent, which was a different position than witnesses claimed, saying that both her arms were alongside her body, not bent. Jose said he did not move her arm, that he only moved her leg. Now, I don't know exactly how Tamla's arms were laid by her side, whether they were wrists up so they were exposed or if they were by her side and they weren't exposed, but Tamla's right wrist with the one-inch cut was dislocated, so maybe that's how he saw the cut, but I'm not sure. I'm just theorizing that maybe he did move her arm and that's how he saw the cut on her wrist. There was also a point during Madeline's interview that really upset me. Madeline, John, and Jose were all interviewed at John's house the day of Tamla's funeral. During Madeline's interview, John appears a few times, and it was actually quite confusing sometimes reading the transcripts because I thought they screwed up, but John was just there interrupting the interview. Towards the end, though, Madeline is saying that she first thought Tamla fell because she tripped over the metal railing. When detectives asked her what she thought happened now, Jean came back interrupting the interview to tell Madeline that she was leaving for the funeral and to watch her kids. After this, the question wasn't answered and the interview ended. How convenient. Once again, I just get the feeling that someone's hiding something and I'm not the only one. So remember when Jose said that Jean had the surveillance cameras on the back deck that would show what happened? Well, in one of the investigative reports, there's a copy of an email from Jean to the case investigator, Michael Christian. Remember that name. In this email, she forwarded another email from her surveillance footage provider, an email that was from August, so three months prior to Tamla's death, that the batteries to the cameras were low. So I'm assuming by November they were dead, and eventually there was no surveillance footage that could tell exactly what happened to Tamla. On February 6, 2019, Tamla's autopsy results came back. Tamla had abrasions to her forehead, left eyelid, the bridge of her nose, right temple, chin, left arm, left hand, and left leg. She also suffered from subacranoid hemorrhaging and cerebral hemorrhaging. Potential causes for hemorrhaging do include impalements and falls, so this does match up a little bit. Subacranoid hemorrhaging means that Tamla suffered from a stroke due to bleeding nearby the brain, and cerebral hemorrhaging is uncontrolled bleeding in the brain. She also had injuries to her torso and her extremities, as well as lacerations or deep cuts to her right wrist and her right ventricle of the heart. This may have been caused by her fall as a high-energy blunt chest injury. 
Her toxicology reports came back as positive for THC, blood alcohol levels being at 0.238, and a small amount of alazropam, often referred to Xanax, which is a medication to treat anxiety and panic disorders. She did test negative for cocaine. Tamla's cause of death was ruled as multiple blunt force injuries, and the manner of death was concluded to be accidental by the Georgia State Medical Examiner, claiming the injuries are consistent with a fall. In the end, based on Tamla's toxicology showing that she was highly intoxicated, caused her fall. At this point, the Forsyth County Sheriff's Department reached the conclusion that the death investigation of Tamla Horsford was closed. Within days of this announcement, the public lashed onto this case. People were outraged that the partygoers were not considered to be suspects at all. Yes, it was quite possible that Tamla fell from the balcony, but who's to say she wasn't pushed? Who's to say there wasn't a conflict that didn't result in a fight? I just find it so odd that everyone's always reverting back to the smoking. Was that what caused a fight? When a case closes, usually all case files are released to the public. I think Lee and his sister's interview with the detectives was the biggest piece that led to the public believing this was no accident. Lee Horsford also makes a really good point to the investigators. He questions why everyone in the house suddenly all went to bed at the same time. On a typical night like this, some people go to bed earlier while others stay up late. Why was Tamla suddenly the only one who was still awake, and then all of a sudden she fell from the balcony? He also questioned why they were focusing so heavily on the toxicology and the fact that Tam was smoking and drinking. He basically calls out the sheriff's department not believing they investigated Tamla's death properly or handled evidence properly. First of all, there were two lighters and two different types of cigarettes. Instead of taking the cigarettes in for DNA testing, Forsyth County decided they would just ask the partygoers and take their word for it. Investigators also told the family Tamla fell over the railing and hit her shin, and that's how she ended up with that injury. When Lee's sister asked why the railing wasn't tested for blood to confirm this theory, they didn't have an explanation. Based on these facts, it was clear as day that the death investigation was assumed to be accidental right from the start. There were no DNA samples taken at the scene. It was all eyes on Tamla. Clearly, homicide was not even in the investigator's mind, or else DNA might have been taken. Tamla's shoes would not have just been left at the scene, and they wouldn't have just taken the partygoer's worth as the full truth. And Lee and his sister didn't exactly fault Forsyth County for this. They knew the sheriff's department were not exactly experts at solving homicides. When they asked Michael Christian how many homicides he dealt with, he said 18. So they took matters into their own hands and got a second autopsy done. 
Tamla's sister-in-law stated to the investigators, we don't trust the system here. They also questioned how everyone claims that Tamla was not wasted. She was not stumbling. But then all of a sudden when she's alone, she's so drunk that she fell over a balcony. And even her blood alcohol levels weren't matching up with what everyone was saying. The range of Tamla's levels would have produced side effects that include assistance in walking, total mental confusion, dysphoria with nausea and vomiting, and possible blackout. But she wasn't stumbling or slurring or anything? But the last person to see Tamla said that she looked fine. It just didn't make any sense. It's not adding up. According to Tamla's family attorney, Ralph Fernandez, the second autopsy showed signs of a struggle. They also found multiple problems from the initial autopsy done by the Georgia State Medical Examiner. Fernandez claims that the initial autopsy only had one x-ray done, despite Tamla's obvious injuries. There was also no specific injury that led to the cause of her death and there were no photographs taken during the autopsy. He claims, quote, This has to be done at someone's directive because such a practice is unheard of, unquote. So that's a lot to unpack. How could two different medical examiners come to two different conclusions, one being accidental and one being a possible homicide? For one, Many people, including myself, wonder how in the world did Tamla cut both her wrist and her heart? There was no explanation of nearby debris, scrapes from the railing, or any nearby objects that explained these cuts. And in my opinion, that's because Forsyth County was not looking at this from any other angle than an accidental death and there was not a proper investigation done. According to the police report, they measured Tamla's injuries, recorded them, measured the railing, questioned some of the witnesses, and left. Police arrived, or police state they arrive at 10.14 a.m. and leave by 11.42 a.m. So they only spent an hour and a half assessing the scene. Now, I do believe the times are pushed back an hour because the night before was daylight savings, so I think that they got to the scene at 9.14 because the 911 call was placed at 9 a.m., and then they left at 10.42 a.m., so just another added complication to this case. There's also speculation as to how Tamla had abrasions on her fingers and forearms if she just fell on her face. If her hands or her arms didn't brace her fall, why would she have abrasions? It's often theorized that these abrasions did not happen during the fall and that they were actually defensive wounds. And once again, it appears her fingernails were not tested for DNA and the house was not searched for any sign of foul play the day of Tamala's death. But there was another problem. Like I previously said, Jose Pereira was a pre-trial service officer, meaning he had access to private law enforcement records, and Jose took advantage of this access. 
In December of 2019, before the case was determined an accident and closed, Jose was fired for accessing a death report that listed him as a witness, aka allegedly Tamla's death report. He's also accused of accessing a stalking complaint report made by Jean accusing one of Tam's best friends, Michelle Graves, of stalking her. Michelle is very outspoken about Tamla's death, not believing for a minute that this was an accident. However, in the stalking complaint, Michelle's private information is included. Michelle has accused Jose of leaking this private information to five other individuals who then began to harass her. Despite public outrage, despite petitions to reopen the case, the case remained closed for a year and a half. Then, during the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement in the summer of 2020, the pressure was on and Tamla was receiving the publicity she deserved. Forsyth County woman, the GBI has agreed to take a new look at the case at the sheriff's request. Investigators originally said Tamla Hosford died after accidentally falling from a deck. Channel 2's Mike Bachenik broke the news this week that the woman's attorney believes this was a homicide. It's, it's great news to hear that, you know, um, what we've been asking for this entire time is actually happening. Ashley Harris is behind a petition that demanded a new investigation into the death of Forsyth County mother, Tamala Hosford. Hosford died under mysterious circumstances after attending an adults-only slumber party at this home in November 2018. Investigators concluded the mother of five died after accidentally falling off this deck. But as Channel 2 Action News first reported last week, a family attorney claims his review of the evidence suggests a possible homicide. Harris's petition has more than 500,000 signatures and the endorsement of big names, including T.I. and 50 Cent. We want a, a, an honest, fair, thorough investigation. In this letter to the GBI Friday, Sheriff Ron Freeman officially asked Director Vic Reynolds to assume and open an investigation into the, quote, tragic death of Tamala Hosford. Freeman wrote, quote, renewed requests for reexamination are best served by an independent law enforcement agency to review previous findings and to search and act on any new evidence which may come to light. Freeman promised full cooperation from his agency and full access for GBI agents as they conduct their own inquiry. Really ecstatic because I feel that the Horsford family has been denied justice for a very long time, and it feels like this is a window to them finally getting justice. The Georgia Bureau of Investigations claimed they would reopen the case, which was super exciting news, but maybe it wasn't enough. The family is now petitioning for the FBI to look into this case because GBI was involved in the initial investigation with Forsyth County and that clearly didn't go well. And I agree with the family, and I will link the petition in the description. I think that there is a lot of corruption in these police departments, so let's get into that one. As I said, remember the name of the case investigator, Forsyth County Deputy Michael Christian. According to the Justice for Tamla Horsford Facebook page, Michael's not such a good guy. There were alleged text messages released in which Michael is the author stating to an unknown source about a broken mailbox saying, quote, Black family requested report. And of course, my first thought is they did it to themselves. 
because I am a racist cracker, unquote. This text message has not been verified to my knowledge, but even if it's not real, there's plenty of evidence against him and he is no longer a deputy as of December 2020. Michael Christian was also taken off Tamla's case in the middle of the investigation and was demoted to patrol, which makes people question why. And then after the case was closed, he was promoted again. In October of 2020, a woman came forward claiming she had information about the mishandling of Tamla's death investigation. This was apparently allegedly covered up by Ron Freeman, the sheriff of Forsyth County, after drafting an internal affairs report that allegedly destroyed the evidence this woman brought forward. According to the Facebook post, the Internal Affairs Unit interviewed close to 40 women that claimed Michael Christian was a sexual predator preying on female crime victims. These women also claimed they were given sensitive case information about multiple active cases, including Tamla Horsford's. The sheriff also gave Christian the opportunity to resign, and he did two months later. This former Forsyth County deputy is facing accusations that he sent sensitive crime scene pictures and other evidence to several women. The deputy resigned, but one private investigator says that's not enough. He told Channel 2's Mike Pachinik that deputy should be facing criminal charges. Laying in the yard down, basically on the patio in November 2018, a young Forsyth County mother died under suspicious circumstances after an adult sleepover. Assigned to the Tamala Hosford case, this man, veteran sheriff's investigator Mike Christian. And he's snapping me pictures of her dead body laying there. This woman says she was having an affair with Christian at the time. This internal affairs investigation we obtained through open records shows Christians accused of routinely sending her and others crime scene pictures, videos, and others' personal information. And him sending me crime scene photos and people's personal information is a huge violation. This woman and another reported their concerns to internal affairs. He's just job as a cop to find women. This internal affairs report confirms one of the women with whom Christian was having an affair was a victim of a crime he was investigating, and that Christian often called and texted them throughout his shifts and routinely met with the women while on duty. The fact that uh, he was carrying on these affairs is one horrific thing, but then sharing confidential information about investigations is uh, uh, just too much. Uh, it, it's very compromising. Veteran law enforcement officer turned private investigator Brent Brown says he believes Christian should face criminal charges, and he says the cases Christian investigated should receive extra scrutiny. Defense attorneys are pretty sharp, uh, and they don't usually need any help in poking holes, but this certainly uh, gives them a double-barrel shotgun to poke holes in, in cases. Christian sent us a statement Friday that says in part, quote, I am far from a perfect human. I chose to end a long-term extramarital relationship abruptly. This person, out of anger and hurt, chose to go to Sheriff Freeman with a list of alleged misconduct on my part. The IA investigation lacks my side of the story and makes me out to be something I am not. All the good I had ever done in 16 years of law enforcement is gone with this document. 
and Christian resigned before that internal affairs investigation was over, but the sheriff completed it and found that he violated his oath of office and neglected his duty. And in a statement, the sheriff told us, quote, when someone acts as this former employee did, they lose their right to work alongside those deputies and employees who serve with such distinction and heroism daily. The sheriff has made it expressly clear that unethical, illegal, and immoral acts will lead to termination from this agency. Reporting live, I'm Mike Pachenik, Channel 2 Action News. There's also multiple accusations against the sheriff's department itself for having relationships with potential persons of interest, specifically Jose Barrera, which may have led the investigation to go into such a narrow mindset. Like I said, Jose worked for the Forsyth County Court, and the Forsyth County Sheriff's Office were the investigators for Tamla's case. There's no doubt in my mind that he had a relationship with many of these officers. However, Forsyth County Sheriff's Department has made numerous statements claiming there were no relationships between witnesses and deputies that interfered with the investigation. But what was odd was that Jean sold the house where Tamla died to Forsyth County Sheriff's Deputy Reeves in February of 2019. Now, I'm not saying that this was a ploy to get rid of evidence to a deputy. This was around the same time that the case was closed and records were made public, which included the address to her home. It was also a really nice six-bedroom fancy home that I'm sure attracted many people. But it just raised more suspicion to the possibility of corruption in the sheriff's department. So that's all I really have for today. The latest update, according to the Justice for Tamla Facebook page, claims that the GBI has updated the family that there were, in fact, inconsistencies that could possibly rule Tamla's death as a homicide. But before I go, I do want to talk theories. Obviously, Tamla could have fallen, and it could have been an entire accident and no one had anything to do with it other than Tamla herself. But it just seems weird that her alcohol levels were so high and no one noticed her acting strange at all. I understand people hold their liquor better than others, but she was on the verge of alcohol poisoning. You can't hide that without slurring your words or stumbling around, in my opinion. Also, the fact that Xanax was found in her system, although a very small, almost undetectable amount, made a lot of people question how. Tamla was not prescribed Xanax, and her sister-in-law even told police before she knew that that was found in her toxicology that Tamla would not have voluntarily taken any other substance other than alcohol or weed. Many people suspect that Tamla was drugged. Now, if you mix Xanax and alcohol, that could be a fatal combination. However, I don't think she had enough Xanax in her system that could have caused her death, but I'm not a doctor and I don't know. There's also speculation that Tamla tried to drive home. According to some of the people at the party, she was talking about driving home that night but everyone told her to stay put. But her phone was also in the kitchen. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I would never do that when I'm at someone else's house, especially if I'm still feeling awake like Tamla appeared to feel. I don't know Tam personally, obviously, but many people theorize that her phone was taken away from her, whether it was because she was really drunk, that she wanted to leave, and the others didn't want her to leave, or something worse was going on. Personally, I don't think that this was a premeditated act if it was caused by someone else. I don't think she was targeted to be the only black woman at the party so they could kill her. I think something got out of control and Tamla was pushed over the balcony. I just find it so odd that the door to the balcony opened at 1.49 a.m., closed a minute later, and opened again at 1.57 and never closed again. Was she talking to someone? Was she trying to find someone? Tamla was trying to convince some of the women to stay up with her. Maybe she was nervous about sleeping in an unfamiliar place, or she just wasn't tired yet. Maybe she went out to the balcony, thought that everyone was asleep, and decided to go back inside and get some of her weed to help her sleep. But if you've never smelled marijuana, it can be very potent, even when it's not burnt, so it's possible someone wasn't fully asleep and smelled it. So when she went back to the balcony and left the door open, she was prepared to light a cigarette first because there was an unlit cigarette found and a lighter on the balcony, but someone may have startled her, which led her to drop that unlit cigarette and the lighter. Maybe there was a conflict or someone did in fact startle her and she just fell. I'm not sure. Maybe that's why the fact that she was the only smoker was constantly brought up. I don't know why it would be a topic of interest of every person's interview if it wasn't incredibly important to the cause of her death. But that's my theory. I don't know who would do that, but I just can't get over how calm that 911 call was. It just felt very distanced, very targeted to blame Tamla for falling. So let me know if you have any theories. Do you think that this was just an accident? Like I said, that could be very possible, but the initial investigation only led to more questions than answers, and that can't be taken back. It was completely investigated as an accident from the start and it appeared there were no extra measures taken to investigate Tam's death as a potential homicide. So that's it for this case. If you want to sign the petition for the FBI to investigate Tamla's death, I will leave that in the description. Thank you for listening to Tamla's story. She now has five boys without their mother, a stepdaughter who I'm sure misses her dearly, a grandchild she's never met, and a husband who never got the chance to grieve for his wife because he felt he had to be the one to investigate her death. Thank you for listening to Let's Talk Crime, and I'll see you next time. Bye.